2: Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show, which you can listen to live Monday to Thursday, ten till one on Times Radio. But it's nice to have you with us on the podcast. Thank you for listening and downloading. But also thank you to those of you who posted some nice comments on uh, iTunes reviews recently. If you haven't done that yet, it'd be lovely to hear from you. You can post a comment or a suggestion or uh, or whatever, or just a rating. It does help with the old mumbo jumbo charts. There's a lot of political podcasts around now, and obviously Red Box has been around uh, for some uh, time now, and hopefully all well, there is now light at the end of the tunnel or as the Prime Minister put it
0: the crocus of hope is
2: poking through the frost. I mean that just sounds like the worst chat-up line in the world but it does mean that hopefully uh, soon more of you will be back commuting and you'll be able to listen to the Red Belts podcast every day as you head home from work. Anyway, enough of that. Coming up on today's episode, a brilliant interview with Chris Smith, the former Labour MP, the first MP to come out as gay, the first openly gay cabinet minister, and the first MP to come out as HIV positive. It's part of uh, the series we've been doing, speaking to uh, lots of uh, politicians to mark LGBT. History Month. That's coming up later in the episode. But first, because lots of you asked for it, you wanted to hear more from the Times columnists like the old uh, podcast, the, the, the columnist's panel. So we kick off with uh, finkelfitch It's Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich. Right then, let's get down to business. Is it OK to call someone Lady Macbeth if they are behaving a bit like Lady Macbeth? This is the big question. So much coverage of... Um, uh, Carrie Simons uh, the influence that she does or doesn 't have over Boris Johnson is it too much? Is it unconstitutional? Is she doing anything wrong? Is she doing anything at all
3: uh, w- uh, let 's start with you Danny <laughs> um, i wouldn't I, I think if you 're going to start uh, asking whether the Shakespearean analogy is apt, you have to talk to uh, David. My, my view is that that uh, <laughs> insofar as um, Carrie simmons is an influence. Uh, she's been a wholly positive one. I think that the um, there's an, there's definitely a part of the change that's happened in Number Ten Downy Street that has occurred partly because of her opinion. Um, but I think her opinion has been correct. Uh, i don 't regard that as sinister, I think it is perfectly natural for uh, a Prime Minister or any leader to look to their friends, whether they be uh, th- their um, their life partner or somebody else um, for their opinion and to repose ju- uh, faith in it and Carrie Simmons is a, um, is a political professional seasoned political professional who I, I quite admire so I think um, I think this has been a good move. I do wonder about where it leaves the Conservative Party in terms of political strategy. It has pursued one political strategy and now has a rather different political staff, and I wonder about that. Um, but because uh, the, the, gener- the the direction of travel has been away from advisers that I think were giving the Prime Minister questionable advice towards advisers I think the Prime- will give the Prime Minister better advice, it's a good thing. I don't know the extent to which it was exclusively based on Carrie's advice. Um, I think the stories that suggest that she was influential in it are correct, though.
2: I suppose, David, the the, the, sort of the Lady Macbeth question is that if she is just uh, you know just pursuing a different strategy, advi- you know, advising the other half that you, if you if the Conservative Party is going to be successful, then you need to do this differently. That's one thing. If it's to actually you know to take the analogy all the way uh, um, to to sort of assume power that she's not been, ele- you know. Uh, Elected to, if you like, and it all comes down to who's up and who's down, and who she likes and who she doesn't. That's a slightly different question. Yeah,
3: I think the whole portrayal of this story as being—I mean, look—the story was great about the dog and all that sort of stuff. Uh, It was was a great read, and of course, personal elements they do play a role in these things. I've worked in—you know—worked in uh, with loads of different Number Ten teams, and, and in Conservative Central Office, I know, of course, personally, like in any office, personal factors play a role. But ultimately, this was about a political choice, about whether or not Boris Johnson wanted to retain a team who wanted to sort of carry on fighting the Brexit referendum through other means, or whether he wanted to choose a team that was going to um, kind of administer and help run a conservative government. And I think he's chosen the latter of those two in a slightly chaotic way, which is his want, (laughs) Um, but, but definitely political as opposed to simply being a matter of personalities. Dave, have you never really heard quite so
2: much about Philip May uh, and his influence on Theresa May? Is well, it exactly. He's, he's a man or just not
0: as good at politics as Carrie. Well, 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 exactly. And I suppose the question you had to pose back to Danny is, suppose that he hadn't actually decided to go off with Carrie, but it was Jennifer Arcuri. Would you be equally satisfied with her advice being taken <laughs> uh, by by the Prime Minister? Um, The reason why I raised this in the first place, when when we had a kind of little confab about what we would discuss today, was that this is an absolute perennial, which is you have a partner of a, a prime minister or a leader, and it's always applied to a woman partner to a male prime minister or a male leader, of whom it is said they are essentially Lady Macbeth, they are pulling all the strings, they have a kind of undue degree of influence. And there's a psychological element to this, which is the idea that the a powerless woman expresses her power through pressure she places upon her man and therefore because it can't be democratic it's somehow uh, in some kind of sense illegitimate. And I was interested because I've seen this in so many emanations. You saw it with Cherie Blair, who would be attacked enormously. You obviously saw it with Hillary Clinton, who was a very powerful figure in the Clinton administration uh, in her own right. Uh, you saw it even with Samantha Cameron, I seem to remember Danny. this is one of the reasons why I thought you might have a a, a, a commentary upon it uh, and it is and it is something it's something to which people easily revert now I guess mass max's point in this case is yeah, but this time it's. <laughs> there's no question. <laughs> it hasn't there's no been question
3: that, that Sam Cameron was it was uh, was was influential on David, and um, you know, on, on issues like gay rights, or indeed the whole kind of liberal complexion of the Conservative government, or his appeal uh, to to the middle class. Right, there was no question about that. Anybody who saw them together could see that that was the case. It didn't mean that he wasn't the leader, but he, you know, he de- definitely w- was the case. By the way, Marina uh, Johnson, Marina Warder was. Very influential on Boris Johnson's decision to support Brexit. Everybody knows that that's true. Everybody knows that that's true, um, and um, you know I think Philip May's um, influence was was sometimes um, was sometimes overstated. Actually, partly because I think Theresa is. Was is um, quite sort of withholding of political information and gossip, and even from Philip, I think um, it's hard to be <laughs> sure about that. So, I think I, you know, I think um, uh, that the, the, all these um, relationships they're inevitably influential. It's silly, it's silly not to think that they are, but it doesn't make them um, uh, you know, wrong, uh,
0: and, and you can't remove them from life. No, but hold on, Danny, hold on, Danny. There's a difference between, let's say, um, your philosophy of life being influential upon your partner or your observation because you're a mother or a father or something like that, and you can observe the society around you, sometimes in a way that a leader can't, and being the person who effectively has a camp inside number ten, which you've got to belong to or not to belong to, and yeah, but... which is you approve of or not approve of. That seems to me an entirely different kind yeah, of Yeah, but I don't think that I think that
3: is an incorrect um, description of of um, the number ten team. I, it's certainly an incorrect description of the relationship. For instance, between Dan Rosenfield and Carrie Simmons, I'm not even sure they they knew each other at all um, before his appointment. It's a, it's a, an overstatement. A relationship between Henry Newman, one of these new advisors. Uh, it's just it's just not the case that. Um, that that sort of uh, a kind of court of Carrie Simmons has set up camp inside Number Ten. Actually, that is a massive overstatement. But in but is it the case? I believe, and I believe it is, uh, that she was of the view that he he was getting advice that that meant that he. That, that meant that he wasn't being the prime minister, that she sort of envisaged him as being. I think that is true. Um, but, I, but I, by the way, think her view of that was accurate, actually. Um, and, and, of course, that influences my view about whether I think it's a good thing or not. Um, uh, you know, I thought Sam Cameron's influence on David Cameron was a good influence, too. Um, and and insofar as I understand Dennis Thatcher's influence on Margaret Thatcher, I don't particularly think it was good influence, right?
0: Um, th- th- you know, but I think you it was mean, sort of mean, relatively you, limited. So you, you mean the fact that he was an unrepentant is... ra- the fact that he was an unrepentant racist? <laughs> well, that kind
2: of, um, that kind
1: of stuff. No, it wasn't. <laughs> let's not
2: <laughs> let's not I, I mean if there are any um uh hardcore Dennis Thatcher fans, I'm sure they'll get in touch. Um, uh let's move let's move on and talk about lockdown. And in particular, uh overnight uh you go in fact uh, quite quickly yesterday afternoon, uh YouGov did a snap poll asking people this is specifically in England, uh that they got the results back from asking people if they support the speed with which Boris Johnson is reopening. Uh, the economy and uh, the pace of, uh, of lifting the lockdown. And the thing that... I mean, 46% said it was about right. 26% said he's going too fast. 16% say he's going too slowly. Uh, uh, only 20% of Conservative voters say he's going too slowly. And the thing that, that struck me was... The anti-lockdowners get an awful lot of coverage and make an awful lot of noise, but they don't appear to have an awful lot of support, even after all this time. Only 16% think he's going
0: too slowly. Uh, David, does this surprise you? Um, It does a little, actually, but that may be because I'm too influenced by what I see on Twitter and hear um, in what the papers say when they report what the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph have been saying. Uh, Because this has been a pretty consistent thing, right? because you just wonder at what point it was going to have uh, some kind of uh, an impact. It's very funny, really, because, uh, and Danny will have had this experience as well, you get somebody suddenly tweeting saying, you know, in supporting this lockdown, et cetera, as if it was something we're kind of doing because for the fun of it, because we like it, etc. We've had this discussion before. Um, you're going against where the vast majority of British people are. And you turn back to them and say, you know what, there's no evidence that's the case. Actually, all the evidence seems to be that we're pretty much online with the British people. And then they say, what do they say? You know what they say. They say, who says so? And you say... Polling evidence—they say who conducts the polls—and then you're off on one. Uh, and so, and I, think it's <laughs> I think it's partially because there's such a kind of hermetically sealed set of arguments amongst the kind of what they call lockdown sceptics that they aren't actually very much in touch with what or with what ordinary people think. One of the things I was struck by was when Matt Hancock uh, was talking about the 10 year possible jail sentence for having declared yourself wrongly to have been in a country that had a a variant in it. um, The polls seemed to suggest that most British people thought that wasn't harsh enough. And it did kind of make you wonder if you'd ask them if they had the death penalty for it, they wouldn't have signed up for that as well.
3: Yeah, that's that's always the thing. I I remember when
0: when I. No, go on,
2: Danny.
3: Yes, yeah, so when I when I was um, working in in the last days of the SDP, we had a by election candidate uh, who um, he used to keep his, his uh, front tooth in his top pocket and only take it out for press conferences, and he couldn't remember any he couldn't remember any of the policies of the party, uh, and and after he was briefed, he'd forget them. And David Owen said to him, "I tell you, I tell you what." Um, just think of the toughest thing that you can think of when you're asked a question um, and say that. He said, I can always, uh, I can always dial us back from there. Um, And um, I always think of that whenever I see a poll like this. Um, (laughs) It's not that surprising. And the British people will always take a pretty tough line, particularly where their security or personal integrity is concerned. Right. Um, They expect government to make the correct judgments. They don't necessarily expect, actually, that the government will will follow every kind of prejudice and instinct that they have themselves but they still have them um and i I think the 10 year thing was was pretty revealing right i you know i was i did actually think it was a bit i'm a friend of matt hancock's but i did think it was a bit mad um to be to be honest (laughs) but 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 i but i wasn't that surprised to discover that people you know people's attitude to that is well you shouldn't do it then right then it won't be a problem (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, um, and now, I, I, you know, I think that uh, the, the rule of law and sentencing has to be a bit more subtle than that. But that is people's view, right? Uh, it, it, you know, it's a bit like their view about the vaccine. When people complain that it's against their liberty, they have to take it. They, they go, well, that's your lookout, mate, right? And and I think that is a very widespread attitude. And and often the view on, for example, social media was wildly out of sync with with public uh, public view. uh, Yeah, I suppose that's
2: and actually, at least the ten the ten year uh, sentencing, it did sort of hammer home the point that people are. uh, you know, the bit, while people were having the argument, everyone else got the message: don't lie about where you are going on your holidays. And it, you know, in that sense, it serves its purpose. Uh, just finally, because I want, I am really interested in this as well, um, David. We're sort of now at the point where Joe Biden has got his feet under the desk. He's in the Oval Office. He's obviously found where the Oval Office is. We thought that he was. He was. We were told he was senile. He couldn't possibly um, uh, uh, run a, run a major uh, global economy.
0: Um, any evidence of that so far? Well, it was very interesting because back at the time that he was running against Bernie Sanders, there was a whole kind of spate of stories. It didn't just emerge from the Trump uh, people or speculations, not stories, rather, that actually he, you, there was evidence that he was senile, that he was mildly demented, etc. And you looked at this, and you thought, well, I can't see the evidence for this. But actually, because we're all in lockdown, I can't really see the evidence for much at all. So it was kind of difficult to say. And I wasn't sure where they were getting their information from. Um, I just wanted to mark this moment after Biden has made several speeches, several interventions to say it is painfully obvious, not only that he doesn't suffer from dementia and he isn't going senile, but that actually he is an incredibly astute political leader as of now. Uh, And I cannot think of a single foot that he politically has put wrong or a single wrong note that he has delivered since he was elected uh, uh, back in November uh, on each and every stage. And that is a pretty remarkable record.
3: Yeah, that's of course dependent on whether we think he's correct or not, David. But I would, you know, but uh, I broadly do so. I broadly agree with that view. I never thought that he could be suffering from dementia because in American politics, uh, you 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 haven't published your health records to too great an extent. Um, but I do think there is a there will be a question over the period over his period in office whether the energy that has sustained Joe Biden throughout his career will 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 be there. But I also agree with David. I think. The evidence so far is pretty encouraging. Um, I was, you know, very strongly of the view that he should be elected. um, And it's certainly not a view, not, you know, even taking Donald Trump out of the equation that I resolve from. I think that kind of um, centrist leadership that he offers is, you know, is good leadership. And I think it's proving it. And the other thing... um... Kamala
2: Harris, obviously the Republicans try to whip up, well, Kamala Harris is the one who's going to be running the show, really. And actually, she seems to have taken the sort of traditional, you know, um, uh, not quite backseat, but, you know, the the, the correct and proper role of the vice president. You know, she pops up occasionally, she appears alongside him, but she's clearly not out there making all the noise, uh, doing lots of interviews and things that you might have expected.
3: Since Mondale, there has been an increase in the, uh, in the it, it, who was Carter's vice president, there's been an increase in the influence of the vice president. Um, and at times it's peaked, as it did under Dick Cheney, where he really was, you know, pretty much the kind of prime minister in the, in the Bush administration on, on some issues, foreign security issues. Right. But that is unusual. She is much more much closer to the norm, and that was always likely to be the case, unless the much more the more lurid theories about Joe Biden were, were right, and I never thought that was, was
0: the case. Yeah, I mean, firstly, there's an enormous amount of work to do, and there's an enormous amount of work to do in the Senate, etc., and I'm sure... That she's pretty active doing it and uh, that she has her own kind of significant areas of responsibility, which you only just be getting to to grips with. Uh, But isn't it interesting as well how uh, she becomes, for the right in America, also very easily a Lady Macbeth figure, although even worse, more (laughs) insidious, a black Lady Macbeth, um, which is kind of, you know, the scariest kind of Lady Macbeth you can possibly get. (laughs) Daniel
2: Finkelstein and David Ivanovich there. And of course, you can read them every week in the Times. Just get yourself a Times subscription. Go to the Times.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, that extraordinary interview with Chris Smith.
4: Past Imperfect, with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson, a weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, Booker Prize-winning author Douglas Stewart talks candidly about coping with his mother's alcoholism and being gay in 80s working-class Glasgow. I
3: was attacked very violently when I was,
4: I think I was 15,
3: and actually it was an old Glaswegian housewife who was driving by.
2: She thought they were stamping on a dog and so stopped her car and got out and chased these boys away and and at the center
4: of it was me past imperfect with rachel sylvester and alice thompson douglas stewart in his own words now available as a podcast listen on the times radio app or wherever you get your podcasts
2: say hello to a new era of mental health care With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024.
0: See site for details.
2: Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier.
1: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
2: You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Now, my interview with Chris Smith. Uh, Way back in uh, the 1980s, with the words, my name is Chris Smith, I'm the Labour MP for Islington South and I'm gay. He became the first out MP. Decades later, he became the first out gay uh, cabinet minister and then the first MP to acknowledge that he was HIV positive. I've been talking to him and I started by asking him about when he decided to come out publicly.
4: Uh, Well, I'd uh, been first elected to the House uh, as the MP for Islington South and Finsbury Uh, in 1983. um, uh, I had made no particular secret of the fact that I was gay before I was uh, elected. Um, uh, Virtually all of my constituency party knew that I was gay, um, but uh, I'd never said anything publicly on a public platform. And I sort of thought, having been elected, I thought at some point, I really uh, do need to stand up and say something about myself. Um, uh, It was partly because uh, there were one or two colleagues who were gay, who weren't out, um, who were being hounded by the press, uh, who had uh, reporters sitting in cars outside their flat uh, all night, Uh, their dustbins were rummaged, all sorts of, of harassment going on. Um, uh, I, I just decided the way to avoid all of that is to remove the story. And you remove the story by telling it yourself. And uh, so I had made up my mind that at some point I needed to stand up and say something. Uh, but the crucial question was when? When, when? when would the right moment actually be? And uh, it's also worth remembering, I had a wafer-thin majority. I was uh, elected with a majority of 363 votes in uh, 1983. Uh, I eventually got it up to over 15,000, but um, uh, it, it, was, uh, it was wafer-thin at that point. Um, the occasion came about a year later. Um, it was uh, the city of Rugby in the Midlands uh, had changed political control and the incoming leader of Rugby Council had said that he was going to remove sexual orientation from the list of things they would not discriminate against in their employment policies. So effectively, he was saying, I do not want to have LGBT people coming to work for Rugby Council. And uh, understandably, a lot of people were upset about this. There was a big march and rally called on a Saturday lunchtime. And because I had said supportive things about LGBT rights up to that point, uh, they invited me to go up and speak. So I can remember going up on the train and writing this very boring speech uh, on my way up. Uh, uh, But then walking into the hall where the meeting was taking place, there were about a thousand people in the hall. Um, The meeting had already started. And as I walked up through the audience to take my seat on the platform, I just suddenly thought, this is the moment to do it. Because the issue here at stake is the ability for anyone, no matter what their sexual orientation happens to be, To do an equally good and valid job working for rugby council as anyone else. And actually exactly the same applies to MPs. And uh, so uh, I went and sat on the platform, it was about 10 minutes before I was due to speak. I I have hardly ever been as scared as I was in that moment. Uh, My knees were almost literally knocking together. Uh, And I stood up and I began my speech by saying, my name's Chris Smith. I'm the Labour MP for Islington South and Finsbury and I'm gay. Um, At which point uh, I have to say the audience got to its feet and gave me a standing ovation. (laughs) It's the the only time I've ever had a standing ovation, less than one minute into a speech. (laughs) Uh, uh, But uh, uh, I, 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 I have, I have to say, Never regretted that moment uh, uh, for a single minute ever since.
2: What was it that made you so nervous before doing it? And was that then borne out by the reaction later, subsequently?
4: Um, The reason I was nervous was I had no idea what the general reaction, not just in the hall, but the general reaction from the public, from my constituents, from the press, was going to be um uh because of course no, no one had ever done this before voluntarily stood up and said this um and um uh, so i was t- taking a huge leap into the unknown um in fact the uh, uh, the response the immediate response there was some press coverage um, uh, uh most of it factual um Subsequently, some of the tabloids had a go uh, over the course of the following month or two. Um, But uh, by and large, uh, it was reasonably um, uh, factual and impartial. Um, uh, I, I had letters from people all around the country. Now, this was way back in 1984, so long before the days of social media. So I, I had letters and uh, a lot of them uh, said, uh, good on you, congratulations, well done. Um, I think the letters that meant the most to me though, were the ones that said, thank you for doing this. It's made it easier for me. And, uh, and, and that the fact that perhaps by standing up and saying something about myself, and generating publicity because of that, uh, I may have helped uh, uncertain, nervous, young people around the country to have more courage and confidence themselves. Uh, I hope that may have done some good.
2: And what was it like when you went back to the House of Commons? Not a place known to always be at the forefront of... Uh, modern Britain I mean the very building is sort of is old-fashioned and the the procedures and so on and and as a result some of the views you know what was it like going back to the House of Commons of of 1984 what reaction did you have?
4: It was interesting Uh, uh, from most of the people I came across a lot of support um uh, Neil Kinnock was the leader of the Labour Party at the time. He went out of his way to seek me out and uh, uh, give me support and, uh, and and offer any help that uh, uh, that I needed. Um, most of my colleagues were very positive. A number sort of avoided my eyes when I uh, uh, passed them in the uh, in the corridor. Um, uh, one or two gave me a cold shoulder, um, uh, one or two said uh, this is not the sort of thing we ought to be talking with our working class voters about. Um, uh, uh, there were interesting uh, responses from across the political divide. Um, I'll never forget a wonderful moment. Edwina Curry uh, um, who was actually a very firm supporter of LGBT uh, equality uh, through her time in the commons. Um, uh, I I was queuing in the members tea room to, to get a cup of tea. Lots of MPs sitting around all over the place. Edwina came marching in and in a very loud voice, she said, Chris, I hear you've come out. Well done and turned on her heel and marched out again. <laughs> and um, and uh, I sort of felt like hugging her at that point. <laughs> Last week,
2: uh, we had Chris was on the show. He was speaking to my colleague, Luke Jones, and he described some of the experience that, that he'd had. Uh, as, a, as a gay MP in the House of Commons. Let's take a listen. Well, one person who is very senior in the House still today, I remember telling me that I was a disgrace and shouldn't be an MP because I was gay. I remember a doorkeeper um, telling me that uh, he wouldn't open a door for me because I was gay. Now, I mean, all of these things have, for the most, most part, changed, but they haven't entirely, I think. I remember one MP telling me, um, that he had been taking bets with journalists about when I would commit suicide uh, when I got into trouble with the uh, mail on Sunday back in 2003. That was the Labour MP Chris Bryant to meet Times Radio uh, last week. Uh, Chris Smith, did you ever experience anything like what Chris was
4: describing last week? I, I, I didn't have anything as extreme as uh, uh, as uh, uh, he experienced. Um, and that may be the context in which uh, it all happened um uh, uh, and and uh, so on i i i do remember one very significant moment uh, though um it was uh, when we were debating all the issues around section 28 which came a, a, a few years after i'd uh, come out publicly now you have to remember at, at this point i was the only openly gay uh, member in the uh, in the commons um, uh, and uh, it was one of the debates on section 28 Nicholas Winterton the Tory uh, very right-wing reactionary Tory uh, was making a speech a, a rather homophobic speech um, and uh, I stood up to intervene on him at, uh, at one point and I made a point and I sat down again and he looked across the chamber at me And before he responded, he said, the house has learned to listen to the honourable gentleman with respect when he talks about these issues. But, and he then went on to disagree with me. Um, And I I remember thinking at that point, the fact that he felt he had to say that. um, And remember, all of this was on the Hansard record. Uh, the fact he felt he had to say that showed we had made a tiny little bit of progress. That here he was talking about LGBT people in the abstract, but suddenly there was one of them sitting there in front of him, and he had to acknowledge that fact.
2: This is Matt shortly speaking to Chris Smith on Times Radiant. Now, Chris, we obviously need to be very careful to say that you were the first out gay MP, clearly, not the first. Uh, gay MP there would have been many others uh, through the history books but felt they weren't able to be public about their sexuality for whatever reason the society pressures of the time. Once you had gone public were there other MPs who weren't out who came to you uh, and said that they were concerned about what would happen if they if they were public about their sexuality? Uh,
4: There were certainly a number of MPs um, uh, who uh, were uh, who were gay who uh, were worried about what would happen if they, uh, if they did come out, um, who sought my advice. Um, uh, my advice was always to them, uh, it, it is absolutely better to be open than not. Um, uh, yes, it was probably easier to do this as the MP for uh, an inner London seat than uh, uh, for uh, uh, perhaps other parts of the country. Uh, but nonetheless, it was uh, something where actually you would find people respected you for being open, for being honest, for being candid, uh, and uh, for putting it out into the, uh, into the public light of day. Um, uh, but I would always add, it is absolutely your choice. Uh, you don't have to do it. Uh, if, you're, if you're too nervous about it, then don't. Uh, because you have to be confident in yourself, because it won't all be a bed of roses. There will be criticism, there will be homophobia, there will be insults that are hurled at you. You have to be confident enough to live through all of that. And, and where do you see the sort of situation
2: now? Um, there are, I, mean, I think we were part of the reason for having the discussion last week was that. I think it's now been overtaken by New Zealand. But after the twenty nineteen election, the UK Parliament, the House of Commons, was the gayest Parliament in the world, with the most out uh, MPs anywhere. It, it, as, as the person who was the sort of the the flag bearer right at the beginning, um, how does that make you feel?
4: Uh, it took uh, nine years before anyone else joined me uh, in the open. Um, uh, but now it's uh, it, it, there. There are very large numbers of MPs who've uh, uh, who've had the confidence to come out. I I really really welcome that, um, uh, and I welcome particularly uh, the the fact that it's both uh, lesbians and gay men, um, that it crosses all the political uh, parties. Um, uh, the, uh, we, we still don't uh, have any transgender MPs um, in um, uh, in Westminster. Uh, we've had transgender candidates uh, in uh, uh, recent elections, but uh, no one yet elected. That's the next uh, bit of the glass ceiling to uh, to be broken, I think. Do you think that might happen? You know, within the like the next general election. Do you think that's a pace to change? Uh, the next general election, certainly within uh, the next couple of general elections, I think it has to happen. And uh, uh, New Zealand were ahead of us in that, I have to say.
2: Uh, you then became, of course, the first gay cabinet minister when you uh, joined the cabinet as culture secretary under Tony Blair. Does it bother you that you're, you know, everything that you do, you've had this sort of first gay MP, first gay cabinet minister, or were you just glad to be in the cabinet?
4: I, I was very glad to be in the cabinet. And, uh, and I think I'm right in saying uh, uh, I wasn't I wasn't just the first openly gay uh, cabinet minister in the UK, but uh, the first openly gay cabinet minister anywhere in the world. Um, uh, and the rather wonderful thing was virtually no one noticed. because it had ceased to be an issue then that I happened to be gay, Uh, because I'd uh, come out 13 years before, uh, here I was in the cabinet and uh, uh, people started discussing what sort of job I was going to do uh, at at being a cabinet minister, rather than making a big fuss about the fact that uh, here was someone who was gay being appointed.
2: And in terms of the actual day job, what you did as the uh, Culture Secretary, probably, what he, you know, you always want, every politician wants to feel that they've had some uh, stamp on history. Uh, if we put to one side your, your sexuality, for moment. what you did with museums is probably the most uh, well-known thing, making museums uh, free in the UK. Not necessarily totally enthusiastically supported by Tony Blair?
4: Um, I, I had to spend quite a bit of time convincing him and convincing Gordon Brown, who was then the Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, that uh, it was worth doing. Um, uh, now, of course, um, uh, Tony regards it as one of the uh, great achievements of his uh, administration. <laughs> of course he does. Um, and, uh, and I'm very pleased to say, I mean, it, it is something I'm I'm really proud of having done.
2: Yeah, it even cost uh, a conservative front of hugo soiree's job didn't it when he he dared suggest under david Cameron's early leadership that it maybe it was something the conservatives might look at and it was yeah it was considered even at that point um you know untouchable you would then um you went from being sort of loyal if slightly you know pushy uh, cabinet minister to then then being something more of a rebel you were one of the leading critics of the, the push to a war in iraq to some extent that all seems like a very long time ago and yet it's a it's a row and a division which still lingers in the Labour Party now. Did you expect back then that it would still be such a defining issue for your party now?
4: Uh, I I probably hadn't expected it would be so lingering an issue. Uh, I knew that it was going to be a really significant issue as. Um, In the same way that, uh, uh, for example, the shadow of Vietnam hung over American politics for quite a substantial period of time, the shadow of Iraq uh, uh, has hung over British politics uh, uh, for the whole of the last um, 18, 19 years. uh, I, I tabled both the motions that tried to stop us going to war, both in the February and the March of, uh, uh, of 2003. Um, uh, I, again, I have absolutely no regrets about having done that. Uh, it, it was painful to do because I was visibly and, um, uh, and prominently criticising my own government. Um, but uh, I I just felt that this was absolutely the wrong uh, policy that was being pursued. And uh, there were other options. They hadn't been exhausted. It was the wrong call. Um, I I still feel that that was the case.
2: It was obviously, you know, Tony Blair went on to win the election in 2005, but that was the last election the Labour Party won. Now, what, 16 years ago... When you look at Keir Starmer, given them what you came next—Gordon Brown, Ed Miliband, then Jeremy Corbyn—when you look at Keir Starmer, has he got what it takes? You were there in the wilderness years of the 1980s for the Labour Party. Is is Keir Starmer t- Tony Blair? Is he Neil Kinnock? Where where does he rank in terms of his his prospects?
4: I I think Keir has a very good uh, chance of uh, of leading the party to victory. Um, he. He he looks and sounds like a prime minister, which is requirement number one. Uh, He's uh, very level-headed. He's very decisive. Um, He recognizes the need for Labour, if it uh, is going to have a chance of winning an election, to be credible, uh, as well as, uh, as having passion.
2: Just to complete your story then, sort of slightly wobbly chronology on this, but like I said, yeah, uh, 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 the leader of the rebellion on the Iraq war, he then stood down in the, the 2005 election. And it was at that point that you came out as HIV positive, although you'd been diagnosed many years earlier. Why, why was it that you only did that after, after the, the, taking the decision to stand down? Um, uh,
4: it was... Uh, I, I, I actually did it a few months before I, I left... Uh, the House of Commons, um, but I, I did know that I was stepping down and i wasn 't uh, going to stand again um, someone 's health is actually a really personal thing and um, uh, and, and for uh, for many years, I uh, had lived with HIV uh, it was well under control. Fortunately, uh, medical responses to HIV had developed hugely uh, since I was first diagnosed back in 1987-88. Um, uh, um, uh, but um, uh, so I, I'd always seen it as something that was was much more private, um, and uh, I didn't want to uh, to to, um, to, to go and tell the world about. Although I had thought at some point, quite possibly, I would need to. And uh, I, uh, I think the, the actual trigger for it uh, was uh, Nelson Mandela, uh, whose son had just died of, uh, uh, of AIDS. Um, at his son's funeral, he said, we need to talk about this. We, d- we, we mustn't hide this any longer. Uh, we need to be uh, much more open and honest about HIV and what it's doing uh, and uh, so on. And I can remember thinking, well, it, perhaps, yes, um, uh, I, I ought to. Uh, so I did. I, uh, I did it with the Sunday Times, who, uh, uh, were, uh, uh, who, who were really good at the way in which they, uh, they, they decided to run the story. Um, There was a weekend of of, of, uh, huge interest and publicity. Um, uh, And I can remember there was a wonderful moment on the Monday morning. I walked back into my office in the House of Commons and uh, there was a little note sitting on my desk. Please ring Mr Mandela with a telephone number. Uh, So I rang this number uh, which put me straight through to the unmistakable voice of Nelson Mandela, uh, saying he wanted to say thank you to me for what I would uh, decided to do and to wish me all the very best. And um, uh, it, it, was a, it was, I have to say, a wonderful moment. And uh, it sort of made it all feel a bit worthwhile. What an
2: incredible, what an incredible uh, story. And and yeah, any other negatives that may have come from that surely out, outweighed by that. I have to ask you, well, because I basically ask everyone this at the moment, have you watched It's
4: a Sin? I have indeed watched <laughs> It's a Sin. I loved it. Uh, it was, um, uh, it, it was a bit too painfully poignant at times, because it's a period I absolutely lived through. It's the, it, It's the period when I was first diagnosed with uh, with HIV. Um, uh, The I I have to say the the emotion that I felt at the end uh, most strongly uh, was anger at the way in which so many people uh, wanted to pin a label of shame on people just because of either their medical condition or their sexual orientation and um, uh, we've moved way beyond that uh, in the subsequent uh, 20-30 years. Um, It still hasn't all completely disappeared and um, uh, I very much hope that we will get to a point where it has entirely disappeared.
2: Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times radio show. You can listen to the whole thing, uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1, is available on DAB online via Smart Speaker or on the Times radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe.